0: Amen. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jen. Um, as we get started this morning, we're going to be in John 11, verses 45 through 54. I'm going to read through our passage and then uh, pray, just thanking God for his word and just asking that he would open our hearts to it this morning. Starting in verse 54, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Father, we are just so thankful to open your word today. We are thankful that when the words of scripture are spoken, that it's your voice that we hear. Lord, we know that you have something for us this morning. We know that you have something to teach us this morning. Please just open our hearts to what you're teaching us. Help us not to put up roadblocks to, to try to make it seem like we don't need to change, but let us just open up all of our lives to who you are and what you're asking us to be. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, hello, everybody. Um, If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Blake Godsey. I serve as the kids' pastor here at Solid Rock. And uh, like Jeremy was saying, we obviously wish we could be together worshiping in person, but we are so grateful for the opportunity to be able to worship in this manner. Uh, And then I did just want to share also uh, to echo what Jeff said. Um, We know that this week, has been a really challenging week for a lot of people in our community. And we just like to extend that offer that if you have any needs, please reach out so that we can know, so that we can uh, be a part of, of helping you during this tough time. So before uh, we jump into the passage this morning, I'd I'd also just like to share with you a a little bit of a story. So um, my wife, uh, her name's Caitlin. We've been married about five years. Uh, And if you know anything about Caitlin, something you need to know is that she loves dogs. She is a huge dog person. She has been for a long time. We actually just got our first dog uh, in our family back in September. Uh, But that's not the first time that Caitlin tried to get a dog. Um, When she was in high school, she was out with her aunt, and uh, they came across this dog. Uh, And it was in need of adoption, and it needed a home. So she saw it, and she knew that if she asked her parents if she could get the dog, that they would say no. In fact, her family already had a dog. So really, again, she's a dog person, so she's feeling like she would love to have two dogs around. So she decided that wouldn't be the best plan. But her aunt... Somehow is even more of a dog person, loves dogs even more, and played devil on the shoulder for Caitlin and said, hey, why don't you just bring the dog home? Your parents will see it, see its cute fuzzy face, and they'll let you keep the dog. So Caitlin, being the dog person that she is, uh, agreed to this plan. So it was a plan basically to trick her parents into uh, letting her have a dog. Uh, They took the dog home. Parents saw the dog, saw the fuzzy face, Non-starter. They said, nope, we're not keeping this dog, and now it's your responsibility to find it a home. So uh, it actually turned out really well. Caitlin was able to find a home with uh, one of her friends, and it was a good match. This family liked to go hunting. This was a hunting dog. So honestly, it turned out really well. And the reason that I tell you that story is because this was a bad plan. This was a bad plan, and it was against her parents' will. But in the end, it turned out to have good consequences. And the truth is, we have this in our spiritual lives, where we have this temptation to put our plans and our desires above God's calling. We have this tendency to put our agenda above the agenda of God. And we're actually going to see in our passage today how there's this plan formed, and it's meant for evil, but that God intended this same plan for good, for, for our good, for His glory. So if uh, we're in John 11, as you know, and just to give you a little background on where we've been before we jump into the verse, um, you may remember if you've seen the last few sermons that we have been talking about the story of Lazarus. So Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, uh, brother of Mary and Martha, has passed away. Um, There's a lot of grief uh, involved with that. But what we saw last week is that Jesus performed a miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days. So what we're looking at in our passage today is the aftermath. What does it look like? How did people respond? What happened after Jesus did this incredible sign and miracle? So in John eleven forty-five 45 through 48, it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So in the aftermath of Lazarus' death, there are two groups of people, there are two sets of reactions. Some people see what happened. They saw that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days, and they believed in him. They responded to this miracle Uh, with faith in Jesus. They believed he was who he said he was. But there's another group um, who reports it to some of the people who have been opposing Jesus' ministry in the chief priests and the Pharisees. And so what the Pharisees do is they uh, round up the council. So it's a a body called the Sanhedrin. Uh, It operated as a religious body, but also a political body. It had a lot of influence. They gather them up and they tell them exactly what Jesus has done. So the council, at this point, in the face of what they've heard about what Jesus has done uh, in resurrecting Lazarus, they're not denying the miracles of Jesus. That's not what they're talking about. They're, they've tried that before. They've seen time and time again that he performs these incredible signs. So that's not what they're talking about. Instead, they're talking about what's going to happen if he starts to gain a following. What are we supposed to do as this man continues to gather followers and what is it gonna mean for us? So just a reminder of what uh, Israel's political climate is like at this point. Um, So Israel has been conquered by the Romans. They are under the rule of the Romans, but the Romans had given them a decent amount of independence and autonomy. So they were allowed to live in their own land. They were allowed to practice their own religion Uh, And even to an extent, they were allowed to govern themselves as long as it didn't violate anything uh, that the Romans were requiring of them. So there was this decent amount of autonomy. And when you think about the Sanhedrin, this political religious body, they have been given specifically a tremendous amount of authority and notoriety in this system because they acted as judges. They acted as authorities in this nation. So you can imagine that they are wanting to keep their spot, that they see Jesus as a threat to their place. And so you can imagine they're thinking, okay, there's this, there's this guy. Um, he's gathering a large following. We know that he also, he has proclaimed that he is this person called the Messiah, whom many people believe is going to be a figure who overthrows, who overthrows the Romans. And then not only that, but he said he's the son of God. He has talked about being equal with God. So if you've got this guy uh, then, and he's got a large following, you see how the Romans could see him as a threat to their rule and that it might be an opportunity for the Romans to come and quietly quash the Jews and take away some of that authority. So that's really what they're dealing with. They're seeing Jesus and his influence and they're feeling threatened in their place, threatened in the opportunities they have, the notoriety they have. So they saw the miracles of Jesus and instead of thinking, is, is God doing something here in our nation? Is God doing something that we should be paying attention to? Instead, they're focused on their agenda. And the truth is, we can struggle with this too when we're confronted with the works of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and the other words of Scripture. I think we can tend to try to fit the things that we see in Scripture uh, to what we want to do, to what our agenda is, to what we think is right. One example may be uh, gossip. Maybe uh, we try to rationalize our gossip by saying, well, uh, I wasn't gossiping. I was just telling this person something they needed to know. I really thought this person needed to hear this. Um, I would say it to their face, so it's okay that I'm saying it now. Uh, When we know that Scripture has told us that we should just refrain from gossip, that it is something that is divisive and not helpful in the body of Christ, but we try to rationalize it. We can sometimes do this in the midst of conflict as well. We know that Jesus has asked us, he has told us that if we are going to the altar to offer our sacrifice, but we remember that our brother or sister has something against us, he asks us to leave it at the altar and go and be reconciled to our brother. So we know that that's what Jesus wants for us. We know that he wants us to be reconciled to one another, but sometimes we just want to dig our heels in. We say, well, yeah, I'd be willing to forgive that person uh, if they apologized. Uh, I'd be willing to reconcile with that person if they change how they act toward me. If they're really, really nice, I might could consider reconciling with that person. But Jesus has called us to pursue reconciliation with one another. Or also, there's sometimes when we have idols in our lives and we're unwilling to admit it, we're unwilling to say what is truly their place in our lives. You know, it may be a, a, a sport, a hobby, a food, a drink, uh, a pursuit of wealth, a pursuit of notoriety, whatever it may be, and we say, "This doesn't. This doesn't mean more to me than my relationship with Christ." No, it's just it's something I enjoy. Uh, it's not a big deal. I could give that up anytime. When we know that that thing, that pursuit, has taken place, the place of Jesus in our lives, we do the same thing too. We try to fit what Jesus says, what He does, the words of Scripture, into our agenda. And the Pharisees were ultimately worried about losing their nation and their place in the nation, the authority, the notoriety that came with their position. But one of the members of the council has an idea for how they could avoid this. Verse 49 says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So uh, Caiaphas, he's the the high priest this year, that year at that time. Um, Caiaphas was a a Sadducee. He was of the party of the Sadducees. He was the son-in-law of the former high priest. Um, And he'd actually been the high priest for quite a while. Um, And he would end up having a high priesthood of about 18 years, um, which was pretty long for that time. Uh, the Romans would tend to shuffle this position, kind of a revolving door, in order to kind of limit the, the power that could grow in that position. Um, and something we have to realize, just like with the Sanhedrin, this position also, while it was religious in nature, it also had a very political component to it. So Caiaphas is the leader of this council, this Sanhedrin, and he is not your high priest that you're thinking of from say, the Mosaic Law. This is not uh, the priesthood that we see in Exodus or Deuteronomy. Uh, Things have changed. Things are different. This position has become largely political. But he has this idea. And when you hear it the first time, you might think, oh, okay, Caiaphas is presenting this idea that maybe it's worth Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That's not, unfortunately, the good intention that Caiaphas has. Instead, he's thinking, it's good for this one man to lose his life so we can keep the status quo, so we can keep what we've got around us. And we're going to delve into that more as we go through the passage. But that's kind of what he's saying, is that we could get rid of this one guy, and we don't have to worry about losing anything. We can keep our agenda if Jesus is out of the way. And Caiaphas, you can, you can kind of tell from his words, too, when he says, you know nothing at all, he's kind of scolding this political body, his uh, brethren, his... Uh, co-laborers, if you will, in the Sanhedrin, um, he's pointing out to them, like, guys, the answer is simple. If we get rid of Jesus, we have nothing to worry about. And what his justification is, what Caiaphas' justification is, is that it's better for one man, regardless of who that man is. If, if he has miracles, he doesn't have miracles, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not as important as our nation. It's more important that we keep the nation, even if he has to die. These words, he basically is saying, you could paraphrase what Caiaphas is saying, like, you guys don't get it. How could you be so naive? He's speaking strongly. This is clearly the right answer. And of course, he was thinking that Jesus' death would save them from the Romans. That's what he thinks Jesus' death is about, saving them from the Romans. That's, in his mind, the ultimate enemy. Now, we do have to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit as we discuss this passage. You may remember that uh, in the history of Israel, after uh, Solomon, the kingdom split into two, the northern kingdom they called Israel, the southern kingdom they called Judah, and uh, the northern kingdom was exiled from its land in 722 BC, and the southern kingdom uh, was exiled from its land in 586 BC by the Babylonians. They've seen this before. They know what it's like to have been exiled from their land. Because in those times, they were taken to other countries. So they recognize that right now, hey, at least we're here. At least we're in our nation. At least we're practicing our religion. Even if we do have these Roman overlords, at least we're here. And so you can imagine the fear that would be involved with the possibility of losing your nation based on one person. But the unfortunate part is they were looking at the small picture, not at the big picture that God was presenting through Jesus. So after Caiaphas makes this statement, um, they set up the plan to kill Jesus. Up to this point, the religious leaders have been trying to trap Jesus in blasphemy. We saw this in John 10. Um, He says, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus is able to escape. Um, That's what they've been kind of doing. They've been trying to cause him to stumble, to trip up a little bit, um, so that they would have some sort of justification for getting him out of the way. But now they're basically saying, we're not worried about the justification. Our plan is that we need to arrest him. We need him to die so that we don't have to worry about the Romans coming and taking our place. So Caiaphas had one thing in mind with this plan of his. He had one agenda. It was a very human agenda, but John is going to tell us that there was a deeper meaning, that there was another agenda behind what Caiaphas said. Verse 51 says, "He did not say this of his own accord." So this is John giving us his kind of commentary on what Caiaphas had said. "He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation." And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And there, Jesus therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So John is letting us know that even though Caiaphas had, and the Sanhedrin as a whole had this one agenda with what Caiaphas had said that God had a different meaning, that God was actually using Caiaphas as his mouthpiece, that this was actually a prophecy, even though Caiaphas didn't realize it. So the Jews, and like I talked about the high priesthood a little bit, it it had changed, but historically, the Jews saw the high priest as someone who served as kind of the mouthpiece of God. So for Caiaphas to say something prophetic, um, while not meaning to, is honestly deeply ironic. It's very ironic that his words are intended to harm a messenger of God, but that ultimately they will prove true, but for a different reason and with a different outcome. His words and his plan were meant for evil, but God meant it for good. When Caiaphas spoke those words, he was saying, if we don't kill this man, we will lose everything. If we kill Jesus, we can save our nation from the Romans. That's what he was saying. That's what he meant. But God had a different meaning. We're going to look at two different aspects of this, see what God's meaning was behind what Caiaphas said. First, this idea that one man should die. God's meaning is that it is necessary for one man, Jesus the Messiah, to die in order to save the Jews and the Gentiles, not from the Romans, but from sin and death itself. Romans 5, 18 through 19, Paul says this: He says, Therefore. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So what Paul is doing here in this passage, he's giving you a contrast between Adam and Jesus. So he says, through the one man, through Adam and Eve's sin... Sin and death came into the world, but through Jesus, justification and life. And just as one man's disobedience led to this sin in the world, so one man's obedience, Jesus' obedience, leads to life. And for Jesus, it's not, it's talking about this act of obedience, ultimately referring to his willingness to go to the cross, but also a lifetime of obedience. Whereas Adam stood in disobedience to God. And so it's necessary as we talk about how one man should die that we take some time to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. And the reality is, when we see it in this Romans 5 passage, we are all sinners, and we're sinners by nature. We're also sinners by choice. Because of Adam's sin, because of this uh, sin that he committed, we are born with this nature, this bent towards sin. It's natural to us. We don't have to teach people to do bad things. We have to teach people to do good things. And even though that's our natural bent, we also can't help but realize that our sin is also a matter of choice. Because even when we know the right thing to do, we often choose the wrong thing. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And the truth is there is nothing that we can do to make up for the sins we commit against God and others. God is a holy and perfect God. He, there is no sin in him. So our sin, we can't coexist. That's why there was separation from God at the time of our sin. And ultimately, because God is creator, because he is God, ultimately all our sins are committed against him. He created us, he created anyone we could sin against. Ultimately, our sin is against him. But we also can't diminish the fact that our sins hurt others our sins against God, our sins against others, they can have long-lasting effects, long-lasting negative effects because of how we treat one another. We can't diminish that fact that though all our sin ultimately is against God, that we have also hurt one another. But Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. He then willingly laid down his life taking the penalty we deserve so we could be reconciled to God. So Jesus is is this person. He lived a life as a man, but we see even early in John, he says he was there at the beginning. Through him, all things were created. He was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was, he is God. And he lived a sinful life as a man. He came and he lived among us and lived unlike us. He lived without sin. And then he willingly laid down his life. We saw it in John 10. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd who willingly lays down his life for the sheep and he is able to take it back up again. That death that he suffered on the cross was the penalty that we ultimately deserved. Our sin deserved death and separation from God. But because Jesus took that penalty from us, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God through faith faith in what Jesus has done. And we know that ultimately, Jesus' story does not end in death. It doesn't end in the grave. We know that three days later, he rose again. He's ascended into heaven, and he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is the only one who could possibly save us from our sin problem. Because he is fully God, he was able to live a life of perfection, to live a sinless life, to live a life not deserving of death. But because he lived as a man, he, he lived the same life that we lived. He went through the same trials, temptations, tribulations that we've all been through, but he went through them without sin. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our difficulty. He knows. He knows what we've been through. And that makes him a perfect sacrifice. The second thing that we can take from this uh, prophecy from Caiaphas, the second thing we can take from uh, what John explains is this idea that Jesus would not just die for the nation. Remember, it says Jesus would die, not only that Jesus would die for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John is explaining a little further on what Caiaphas said. He's, he's saying what he said, yeah, he would die for the nation. But I also need to remind you of something else that God has promised. God promised to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. So John is reminding us that this promise, this sacrificial death of Jesus, doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel, but that it also applies to the whole world. And we all can be called children of God. Paul talks about this idea in Galatians 3, uh, starting in verse 7. says, "'Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham.'" And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that quote that he has there, that in, the, in you, the nations shall be blessed, is from Genesis 12, part of the Abrahamic covenant. You see there that it says, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed when he called Abram. And then Paul goes on later in Galatians 3, in verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what we see Paul saying here is not that there aren't distinctions that exist. Clearly there are still Jews, there are still Greeks or Gentiles, There are still slaves, there are still free. There are still men, there are still women, but what he's saying is the divisions between those two groups and each of those pairings, that doesn't matter nearly as much as the unity that we find in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we can find unity even in those differences. We're not primarily identified by those things any longer, but we're identified by being a part of the family of God. And so when we see John talk about Not only this nation, but but all the people will be regathered. He probably has in mind this idea of the the Jewish diaspora, that he's thinking that the Jews who have been dispersed to other nations are going to be able to return, and they're going to come, they're going to be able to worship God. And that's true. But also, we know that when he says children of God, that he has a bigger scope in mind, because we see it early in John 1. He's already described children of God for us. It says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John's telling us anyone who has the chance to identify as a child of God, it's because of faith in Jesus. And he says it's not anything to do with, with blood or the will of man, anything. Nothing matters except for faith in God, and that's what allows us to become a part of God's family, to be called children of God, is to believe in the name of Jesus. And as we talk about this bringing together of people from all nations, this one family, this one children of God, we can't help but think about the cultural issues that surround us currently. Here at Solid Rock, we we don't try to float with the culture and say, well, if the culture's talking about it, we talk about it. We let the word of God speak. And when the word of God speaks on something that's going on in the culture, then we are happy to share what God is sharing about what's going on in the culture. And this passage gives us some insight on how we can deal with conversations regarding racial reconciliation in our culture. The truth is, the church should be leading the way in terms of racial reconciliation. We've seen what happens when the world is given the keys to the car. It ends in more division, it ends in strife, it ends in disunity. And the reason is there's no antidote that exists outside of the person of Jesus Christ. There's no reconciliation that takes place between groups of any nation, of any tongue, of any race, apart from the person of Jesus. He is the only one that unites us. So For the church to remain silent on this issue, we know the answer, but we're not sharing it. And the truth is, a lot of times, segments of the American church have been playing catch-up on some of these social issues. We think back to slavery when pastors would write defenses of slavery from the Bible. We think the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King when pastors told him, no, you need to wait. Now's not the time for equality. And we see it now even to an extent where people get caught up in the political uh, groups, the who believes what, who says what, what's their name, and we forget that at the root of it all is people's stories, people's actual lives. And as the body of Christ, because we are children of God, that we're all in one family, we should be listening and hearing the stories of our brothers and sisters. We should be hearing them crying out, and we should be inviting them into a family in which it doesn't matter where you came from, what language you speak, It matters that Jesus has a plan for you, that he died for you, that through faith in him, you can be brought into the family of God. And we see the end goal of this in Revelation 5. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We we have to realize, we have to know that there's never going to be true reconciliation to its fullest until we are fully redeemed in eternity. We know that. But if we know that's what eternity is going to look like, then we should, as a church, be working toward God's ideal. This is clearly God's ideal, that we should be joined together with people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in the family of God, and that we should be worshiping our God together. So when we see that end in sight, even though we know as sinful humans we won't be able to reach it, that should be something that we are striving toward, that the family of God should be the primary uh, way that people identify as part of the body of Christ. The mission of God on earth is to reconcile the nations to himself through the one man, Jesus, into the family of the children of God. So as we wrap up this morning, I'd just like to give us a couple of things to think about. One, is there anything or anyone in your life that has captured your heart more than Jesus? How do you respond when your trust in Jesus and your earthly desires conflict with one another, what do we do when our agendas at the forefront? And what steps can we take to ensure the gospel is at the center of our lives? And now if this talk about the family of God um, is something that's foreign to you, this talk about what Jesus' work on the cross is foreign to you, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us through our app, through our website, we would love to tell you about what it looks like to believe in Jesus' atoning work, to believe in Jesus to become a Christian and be a part of that family of God. Or if those things seem normal and regular, and uh, I've known that all my life, and I, I believe that, maybe God's calling you to something. Maybe he's calling you to baptism, to profess your faith publicly in baptism. Or maybe he's calling you to get involved with serving here at Solid Rock. Or maybe he's inviting you to join a community group and to be a part of the body of Christ uh, in a small group setting. So as the band comes back up now to continue to lead us in worship, I'd just like to spend some time just thanking God for what he has already accomplished through Jesus and thanking him that he's given us an opportunity to be reconciled to himself and to one another. God, we are just so grateful for who you are. We thank you that even in the face of this plan meant for evil, that you intended it for good. That this plan to kill Jesus was ultimately what allowed us to be a part of your family. We thank you so much for that sacrifice. Lord, I just ask that as we go from here, as we realize the identity that we have, identifying with Jesus, being a part of your family, that it will change the way that we look at the world around us. That it'll change the way that we look at the people around us. Lord, that ultimately, as your agenda becomes more magnified, as your glory becomes more magnified, that my agenda, that our agenda, and our glory can be minimized, and that we'll ultimately be able to say that we want what you want, and that we're willing to step aside. Lord, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.